This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Chris Flynn, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you very much for having me. So we've got you here to talk about your new novel called Mammoth, which is your third, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris is the author of The Glass Kingdom and A Tiger in Eden, which was shortlisted for the Commonwealth Book Prize. His fiction and non-fiction have appeared in The Age, The Australian, The Griffith Review, Mianjin, Australian Book Review, The Saturday Paper, Smith Journal, The Big Issue, Monster Children, McSweeney's and many other publications. He has conducted interviews for the Paris Review and is a regular presenter at literary fe- festivals across Australia. Chris lives on Phillip Island next to a penguin sanctuary. That must be lovely in these awful times. It is quite a nice place to be hiding away. I mean, we always feel a bit isolated down here anyway, but um, at least um, in isolation we can go for a a lonely walk along the beach and uh, see some of the creatures. Well, I mean, so we're recording this um, during COVID, um, COVID-19, mm. and um, which is why we're remote. Um, Chris is in his home and I'm in mine. But what has um, some of the observations, and I, I, I've seen it a little bit. I mean, I'm in, you know, in the inner west in Sydney, but my apartment is in a park virtually. And I have seen lots of different bird species come back during this time. And I've spoken to friends who are, you know, who living, I mean, one of my friends is in Kuala Lumpur and he said he's seen man- monkeys reclaim the park that's next to him. So I guess one of, and this relates to your book, uh, one of the things that has happened during this time is I feel that there has been a correction of sorts. Do you think that? Completely. And I can see it every day. I mean, Phillip Island is essentially a, Uh, Jurassic Park like nature reserve anyway uh, with just a few thousand people living on it and um, the number of birds have it's just multiplied immensely in the last sort of six to eight weeks. Um, I went out for a little ride on my motorbike recently and down the back roads of the island and normally you have to be a little bit careful because there's um, purple hens and all sorts of um, geese. Uh, We've got Cape Barren geese which are enormous um, all sorts of birds by the side of the road, and you have to be a little bit careful. But I had never seen so many as I was uh, going, going down the back roads. There, there were absolutely loads of them. Mm. And I think the, the animal kingdom is um, bouncing back very quickly, much more quickly than we probably anticipated, which is good to know because, and I guess we're inadvertently helping the climate with this crisis. And um, it would be nice if we continue to do that moving forward. Well, this is one of the, you know, I mean, I have found out isolation really tough and I, you know, I live by myself and I've been complaining about it for some time. However, I have liked the side effects. I have liked those side effects. I've liked the slowing down of life. I've liked the less traffic, obviously, and yes, the animals. But look, you know, when we, 
you've talked a lot about the environment in this new fiction book um, called Mammoth, and we will get to that. But, you know, I before this, I wondered if you could ever, even though I am a great um, climate change believer, obviously, I don't know why you wouldn't believe anyway because the science is there, but <laughs> it's a terrible term to use, right, because, you know, somehow um, the language out there has been you're either on that side or another, but really there's just one side. But um, I have always been like, is it possible to actually get back to what we were. I've, I, I never knew whether that could happen. And this has shown us that it can. And in a very short space of time. Yes. Um, I mean, nature is resilient. And um, one of the interesting things about writing this book for me was um, researching and finding out exactly how resilient nature is um, in terms of even when animals are gone from the um, ecosystem, they can still help us. And we can still have some sort of interaction with them that could be mutually beneficial. I mean, I'm talking, I'm, I'm talking around the subject here, but I'm hinting at cloning and uh, bringing extinct species back to life, which is you know touched upon in the book. And I've been reading a lot about that since then. And I watched a documentary called Genesis 2.0 about it last night. And oh boy, I mean, it's really they're they're really doing it. Bringing bringing species back. Extinct. They really are. They really are. I mean, there are currently a I mentioned it in the book that there's a Harvard Woolly Mammoth Revival team um, led by Dr. George Church, who is um, pretty close to bringing a mammoth back to life. But there's also another team in South Korea funded by Russian and Chinese money, and they will currently clone your dog for $100,000. And they've done over a 1,000 dogs already. So and does that mean your dog has the same personality? It's identical to what you had? Does they that well, how it well, this is the big question, right? Because it's all unknown territory. So they're cloning people's dogs back to life. Um, the dog looks identical, but yep. it's a puppy. So you have to still raise the dog from puppyhood onwards. So it'll be raised slightly differently to your previous dog. So will its behavior be different? It's the whole nature versus nurture thing. Mm. And where this is going to get super complicated is once they inevitably move on to um, humans. <laughs> Um, because if they have viable DNA, they could clone you back to life. Mm. They could clone, but you'd be a baby. Mm. So it would be identical to you. It would have your brain. You know, it's going to look exactly like you. But of course, it's not going to be raised the same way you were. So mm. is it is it the same person? Will it, will it, will will that new individual have the same thoughts? Will you be able to move there? teaching in a different direction and they have a completely different job from you or will they end up in exactly the same profession? If you were to clone Michael Jackson back to life from DNA, would the new Michael Jackson become a singer or would he be a bus driver? Mm. Yeah, we well, just don't, interesting. You don't it's, know, it's, do you? Yeah, we, we just don't know. But they are going hell for leather in cloning um, animals um, back, back to life. They reckon that within a year they'll have the dodo. So we will no longer be able to say dead as a dodo. Um, the passenger pigeon, these huge uh, prehistoric horses, and the Tasmanian tiger. I've got mixed feelings about it, really. If they're doing it for uh, practical purposes, then I can see a use to it. Um, but if, if it becomes for vanity purposes, um, then it's a bit of a dangerous road to go down. I mean, well, with for dogs, the, it's vanity, isn't it? Well, it, it is complete vanity. You can you can have your dog or your cat cloned right now, and 
I worked for the RSPCA for five years whilst I was writing this book. So there's more than enough animals in shelters needing homes already without cloning the exact version of your of your current dog back to life for a hundred grand. Mm, it's bizarre. I can't get my head around that. I mean, you know, and I love dogs. So I've got a little dog, John Brown, who's 14, and I'd love to see him live forever, but that's just not how it works. No, it is. It's, it's very contrary to nature, but, and some of the scientists involved are being accused of playing God yeah. and, and fair, fair enough, really. Um, but um, I, in the documentary that I watched last night, the, um, they go to this huge lab in China and they are really pushing forward with it very hard. And an American scientist who's visiting the lab um, is brave enough to raise the question of ethics. And he asks the um, woman giving the tour of the lab, you know, how do you feel about this ethically? Surely people in the West would um, question the ethics of this. And she simply nods, smiles, and then her smile fades and she just stares him down. So it's quite clear that they just don't really care about that. I mean, it it begs belief that they're cloning humans. I mean, isn't the population over there one point something billion? I mean, do we really need any more humans? Well, they're trying to say that the genome mapping and the genetic biology that they're using for cloning will be useful in screening out um, genetic abnormalities. So... You know, whether you agree with it or not, they're talking about um, removing things like Down syndrome from, um, from the fetus and um, also and any other kind of diseases that you might end up being born with. So they're trying to create, essentially engineer um, perfect people from birth. Mm. And they're not going to suddenly stop doing it. They're very well funded. Um, so this is going to genetic biology is going to be a huge um, thing in our lives in the next five to ten years. We're going to hear quite a lot about it. Mm, I'm getting nervous already. <laughs> <laughs> I really am, and also I don't trust some people with that technology anyway. Or that well, science, this, if you like, this this is the thing. I mean, the Harvard Woolly Mammoth team. Um, Harvard Medical School are very much bound by doing everything properly and following the ethics and it's it's taking a while to get even the mammoth clone up and running and there'll be a lot of scrutiny on them but there will be other parts of the world where they will just not really worry too much about that and just forge ahead. Um, Do you know, um, like when you introduce, I mean, we it's one of the reasons why we have quarantines at airports. When you introduce animals into an environment that <laughs> perhaps isn't there or they're not meant to be there, that could be quite catastrophic. Like look at the, is it the toad, the, what are, the, what are those? Um, the cane toad. The cane toad up in Queensland. Yeah, we haven't had a very good track record of that um, as, as humans introducing new species to solve problems, which ends up being a problem itself. And in fact, um, China have um, dabbled in this before. Uh, they had a huge problem in some Chinese provinces with gophers that were um, undermining the soil in destroying all the crops. And so they thought, well, what eats gophers? Eagles. We need lots of eagles. So they um, bred thousands of eagles and released them. And now they've got an eagle problem because Mm. there's so many eagles and they're eating every small furry creature that runs around. Yeah, because they they can't decipher. I mean, they... they That's right. And so how do you get rid of eagles? What's the next stage? What... What, what preys on eagles, dragons? I mean, I don't know. What, I don't know where they go from there. <laughs> Do you know what I find astounding too is I'm, you know, I'm not a scientist or a, or a biologist or anything like that. But when you hear stories like that, you think, I could have told you that. 
Like I could have told you that that was not going to work from my limited experience in science (laughs) and nature. I could have told you. Common sense um, dictates that it's not going to work and it never has worked, but it doesn't stop people from convincing themselves that it's a great idea. But we live in a world where people convince themselves of of their own cleverness and always... um, come crashing down to earth eventually. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, a little bit about you, because we, um, we at Better Reading and a lot of our listeners um, like to know um, how the author got to, to where you are now and to writing your book, uh, which is why our podcast is called The Stories Behind the Story. So tell me a little bit about your career and tell me how an Irishman ended up in Australia. Yeah, I was born in Belfast uh, in 72, so right in the height of the Troubles. Yeah. And I you know, left there when I was 18. I always wanted to leave. I never felt very um, at home there, even though my parents still live there. They're very elderly and they're, they're, they're still on the go. They seem to be indestructible. Good. Uh, <laughs> yep. yep. Uh, and, but you but don't I always, want to clone them. <laughs> n- no, and, and, and no. they would not want to be cloned. As I, of course. I, I, I kind of hope most sensible people would not want to be cloned. Mm-hmm. And it's probably only going to be rich billionaires and yeah. idiots who really want to clone themselves. <laughs> Um, and like we need it, right? <laughs> I know, like we need more people like that. Um, yeah. So I left when I was 18, lived all over the world, traveled a lot, um, lived in France for a few years, didn't speak English for a few years, um, lived in um, Thailand for a while, taught English. And what were very, you doing? Oh, um, I, well, no, I, I was just, I'm not really qualified to do anything. I <laughs> I, I um, went to university for um, two years and dropped out, didn't finish it, so I don't have a degree. And I ended up just picking up um, whatever jobs I could get along the way. But in a way, I, I've had that sort of old-fashioned writer's um, career where you just, you know, working in bars and picking up jobs, working in on farms and whatever you can do to survive. And um, and the whole time sort of thinking about being a writer, I always, from a child, was always writing stories and I always wanted to try and do something in that field. And I got some very good advice from uh, a French um, friend whenever I was young who said, no, you shouldn't worry about being a writer when you're young. You should just go and live for a while and, you know, collect some experiences that you can perhaps parse when you're a bit older and um, a bit wiser. And you can sit down and worry about being a writer when you're in your 30s or even 40s. And and I read recently that the average age of the first-time author is 42. I don't know. Um, That's really good advice, I think. Yeah, it, it is. And I mean, a lot of people, young people especially, put a lot of pressure on themselves. They go to uni and then they come out of uni and they want to you know, instantly rise to the, to, to the top of their field. But with the creative industries, you really have to um, just keep living and, um, and meeting people and um, networking and working out exactly what it is that you want to do. And it's not always evident when you're young. Sometimes you don't really work out what you're supposed to be doing in life until you're a lot older, which can be frustrating. But, um, hey, you know, we're probably going to live um, at least 100 years, you know, with the, the advances in technology and maybe a 1,000 years if we end up getting cloned. So take your time. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I was, um, when I was young, I thought I wanted to be a teacher and I did go to teacher's college, which was what it was called back then. And within a couple of years, a couple of weeks, not a couple of years, within a couple of weeks or even months, I realised that I really disliked children. (laughs) (laughs) So that didn't work out for me at all. But you don't know at that age, you know. You don't know. It is. It's all about experience. And I think with writers too, it's all about, or artists in general, it's about observing, mm-hmm. isn't it? That's right. I've always been a very um, keen observer to the point where it's annoying, where I have to switch off my uh, my writer's brain um, when I'm in certain circumstances because I tell myself, look, you're not at work. And you're, you're trying to be out and in, enjoying the scenery or enjoying someone's company. Not all of this has to go into a into a book because um, I think some writers can be a little bit vampiric. You know, they can uh, uh, take everything in their lives and channel it into their work. And I try consciously to keep my own life out of my work as much as I can. Which I you always, do actually. I, I yeah. do see that in your writing. So, did you keep a travel journal while you were travelling, or were you writing like on and off, or writing musings, or vignettes, or whatever it was? Were you doing not, that? Yeah, not so much a journal, but more um, writing um, short pieces of fiction and frustratingly coming up with ideas for um, much longer pieces that I <laughs> was never able to find the time and space to to get together I, I've, I've always had a bit of a, I mean it's a bit of a curse I guess some might some might say it's a blessing but I've been cursed by imagination and I've always had um, a surfeit of ideas so many ideas that um, I don't know what to do with them all and it can be quite confusing trying to sort through them and work out which ones you should concentrate on seriously which ones um, you need to sort of discard which ones are actually part of another idea and that has happened to me repeatedly um, in my work. My first novel, Tiger in Eden, that was a, a long process and a very frustrating one, even though it's a fairly simple, straightforward story in the end. But that book uh, came out of, that was the sixth draft, the sixth complete draft of the novel that I submitted to the publisher. Mm-hmm. And I had restarted from scratch several times where the drafts bore no relation to the previous one. Mm-hmm. And um, I just couldn't work out how to tell that character's story. And the final novel was based on one paragraph in the previous draft where I had mentioned that because the previous draft um, showed him as an older man um, looking back on his life as a younger man. And at one point someone said to him, what did you do when you were in Thailand? And he said, oh, I just bummed around Thailand. And that paragraph of what happened to him in Thailand became the whole book. So it took me years to be able to see 
where the best part of that story was. And once I found that little nugget, then it was fairly easy from that point on to write a, an enjoyable, fun draft. And to my shock, that was the one that the publisher was really interested in. So that was kind of frustrating. But you know. <laughs> Tell me how you got to Australia and why you stayed. Right. I came here when I was uh, 27, I think. Um, I came just on a working holiday visa with a few friends. I had been living in the north of England up in Newcastle. Mm-hmm. and been very unhappy living there. And as a few of my friends were, we decided to take the plunge and go and try and live somewhere else for a while. And it was a toss-up between uh, Santiago and Melbourne. Wow. Wow, that's a contrast, right? <laughs> I know. We wanted to go somewhere totally um, like very far away. Yeah. And we actually, my housemate and I actually took uh, evening classes in Spanish to prepare ourselves for going to, to Chile. But then the, the British arrested Pinochet and they were you know, burning the, the Union Jack in the streets. And I thought, mm, even though I'm Irish, it might not be the wisest time to go and live in, yeah. uh, in Chile. So we came to Melbourne and um, I ended up staying here. And Australia was very instantly, it's hard to imagine a, a country being generous, but, but Australia was, felt very generous to me. People were very friendly towards me here. Um, I instantly felt at home and landed on my feet as it were. I instantly was able to get, you know, odd jobs and have quite a a quality of life that I had never experienced before, even though I was pretty dirt poor. Um, and I ended up staying and um, I've been here since, permanently since 99, pretty much. So um, It's interesting I, you, have, you say Australia is welcoming. I feel that that's true. Um, you know, um, mm. my parents are Lebanese and we were immigrants and when you look at community um, and growing up in a community, that was the feeling. But when you look at government and government policies and how government use immigration as a tool um, to, I don't know, incite hatred, maybe, yeah. then that's not the feeling you get of the country. Isn't that interesting? I think the funny thing about being an immigrant is that um, you can feel very initially welcomed, but... Yeah. There's, there's a little bit of a feeling of close the door behind you. Yes. Um, uh, yes. Um, <laughs> and I've often found it's actual um, people who have migrated who don't want other people to come here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. It's, it's the strange dichotomy of, of modern migration. I mean, it's... But I mean, if you were to ask people why, they wouldn't even know why. No, no, that's right. You know, that's why don't crazy. you want people to come yeah. here? It's often people who've came, who've come here themselves, or, or or their family did. So it makes no sense. But yeah, I, I wonder if that will change too with the uh, the new sort of yeah. world order that we're in, where there's going to be no migration to Australia no. for quite a while. No travel. No. 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 Okay, so um, congratulations on Mammoth. I mean, well, I'm, this is what I'm going to say about it. Wow, it is the most unusually compelling book that I've read. I did think of that line this morning on my walk because it's very unusual, but it's very compelling and it's a super great read. Oh, thank um, you. Talk to me about it. Where on earth did you get this idea from? Yeah, that's a that's a sort of big question. It's it's, it's a, a you huge know, question. Yeah. Um, so, okay, various places it came from. Um, I, Give our readers for, in a synopsis first. Right. So the book is set initially at um, the night before a 2007 natural history auction in New York. And a lot of the exhibits that are up for grabs 
are fossils of dinosaurs and megafauna, but also some other unusual ephemera like uh, meteorites, um, the hand of an Egypt, the severed hand of an Egyptian mummy, um, gold nuggets, um, the shark's teeth. There's all sorts of odd things, and these auctions happen every year in New York. They're a real thing. Yeah, which I, of course I didn't know about until I read this book. Yeah, and they're, and they're amazing. Anyone can go along. You or I yeah. could just go along if we were able to ever go to New York again, yes. and <laughs> and just wander around and handle these things. Like there's no real, there's no one stopping you from lifting them up and having a good look at them, and placing a bid. Um, and so these auctions take place every year. And so this one in 2007 had a, a mammoth tusk and the skull of a tyrannosaurus, and um, a prehistoric penguin a fossil and a pterodactyl and a bunch of other creatures. And so the in the book, these creatures, the night before the auction, start talking to each other, um, telling each other how they died initially back in the day and when they were dug up and why they were dug up and who dug them up and what's been going on for them ever since and basically how they came to wind up on sale together at this bizarre auction. And so the book then jumps back. The mammoth himself was telling the story primarily. Yep. So the book jumps back through time to the early 1800s when he was dug up, um, ostensibly by at the behest of President Jefferson, who was keen to show that America was this great, powerful nation where massive creatures once roamed the plains. And um, there was a, a lot of uh, debate in the scientific world as to how old the earth was at that time. Yep. Um, and then it also jumps back further to about 10, 12, 13,000 years ago to the end of the Ice Age. And he explains how he wound up being killed in the first place. So that's you know the long-winded <laughs> version of what happens in the story. So it jumps around between different time periods. The, the animals bicker and... Um, <laughs> Fantastic characters. Each one's quite different, obviously. Yeah, they are all quite different and their personalities are ascribed by the period when and where they were dug up. So the Tyrannosaurus was dug up in the 1990s and spent a lot of his time in a warehouse in Miami. So he speaks a bit like a, a teenager from Florida, whereas the mammoth was dug up in 1800 and um, speaks a little like an educated, wise old American scientist. The pterodactyls from Germany, so she speaks uh, like a, a sort of 1940s uh, German woman. <laughs> I guess all fiction writing or all writing is really getting a window into the author's mind. And um, at first I thought you were crazy, really, <laughs> because the imagination is so wild, but the storytelling is so succinct. And to bring what, like if I, I mean, and, and we are doing that now, if you're trying to explain this to someone as a serious fiction novel that reads really well, that has got a great storyline and has, you know, intense meaning, and then you start talking about the um, animal characters in it, you, you think that, that people will think, what? How does that work? But it actually does work. And I thought, wow, how did you bring that all together? Probably shouldn't work, right? You know, um... Yeah, I mean, it doesn't make sense that it works. Yeah, I know it doesn't. And when I was writing, I thought, oh, I don't know, I don't know how I'm ever going to pitch this to a publisher. Yeah. Um, in, in I would have liked sense. to have seen that. <laughs> well, I maybe I did so at the right time because yeah. um, my publisher was instantly enthusiastic for it. To my, to but my, you surprise. know why? Because you write beautifully, Chris. Well, thank you, um, but. It was a lot of fun to write, and I've always loved history. Um, and 
the idea of um, shining a light on some of the more obscure, shadowy parts of history was um, was very appealing to me. And so the mammoth, when he's telling his story, there's a, a lot, almost all of the characters in it are, all, all of the human characters are real historical personages um, who lived. And a lot of their dialogue, in fact, is almost lifted from things that they wrote at the time. And, and they're often characters whom you don't really hear very much about in fiction. So for me, it was a way of accessing historical fiction, which is something I've always admired, but always been a little bit frightened of. Um, in my own sort of unique way, perhaps. Mm. Um, I see you've got some great quotes here in the book, uh, Christos Chalkos being one and Elizabeth Gilbert being another. So you've got some friends, well, you're in good company, one would say, wouldn't they? Yes, um, that's a little bit of a shock for a, a, an uneducated Irishman like myself to be, be, uh, be getting plaudits from um, actual real writers who know what they're doing. Yeah. Interestingly, um, Christos's book... Um, what was his last book called? Damascus. The, yes, Damascus um, is in a way historical fiction as well, isn't it? It is, it is. And he and I had a little chat about that. He, yes. he, he, he launched the book for me. We were supposed to do it in person of at course. a bookstore, um, but yeah. uh, we did it through Zoom. And um, but that was a lot of fun. And we got to chat a little bit about the perils of historical fiction or setting a story in the past where you really have to be careful about um, what what words you put in the mouths of characters, what phrases you use, what existed and what didn't at that time, you can really because come across very... Yeah, it's got to be authentic, doesn't it? You've got, I've got to believe it as a reader, don't I? Yeah, that's right. And uh, hopefully the way I've done it, um, yep. any, any, any scepticism about a story told from the point of view of a bunch of fossils at an auction is quickly dispelled as, the, as you're bunged straight into the lives of these creatures, which are essentially just observers of humanity. So even though the story is told by these creatures, it's, they're very human stories that they're telling. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. It's a human story book um, for sure. Okay. We've got to end on that note. Uh, Chris Flynn, congratulations. And thank you so much for speaking with us today. No problem, Cheryl. What a pleasure. What a, what a joy to be on your podcast. <laughs> thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.